0: For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Parenting with Impact. I am so excited to welcome a new colleague of ours today, Liz Dempsey-Lee, who is also a parenting expert. And so we're really excited about having a great conversation about parenting. You know, it's it's rare for both of us, I think, to get to have that opportunity with somebody else who's as
2: invested in the issue as as we are. So, Liz, welcome. Thank you so much, Elaine. I'm really happy to be here.
1: I am too. So, tell me a little bit about how what got you to a point where this is your area of focus and expertise. And you have some interesting issues around parenting that we're going to discuss, particularly we're going to talk about a community equity lens, which is some research you've done and I'm fascinated by. But tell us what got you
2: to here. How'd you come to be doing this? Okay, well, it's a long story, but I'll give you the I'll give you the short version. Okay, the, the button version was that I had my third child and literally was sitting holding him. He was less than two months old in my head. I was like, I need to go back to school. <laughs> and then I was like, this is terrible, terrible timing. <laughs> so I worked towards it. And by the time he was about two and a half, three, I actually was enrolled in a PhD program. I started off Studying family engagement with schools because I've been an educator for a lot of my life. The more I learned, the more fascinated I became with what is family, what is parenting, how does that impact children, or how does it not impact children, and how does that interrelate with school? And then I've just been off and running since then.
1: I love it. So, so personal story um, for you. He was your your baby was two and a half. Mine was six. So. Uh, <laughs> My third child was six before I finally got my act together. So kudos to you for that. (laughs) So what is it about these issues? Like, talk to us a little bit about, because you've done your research. As an adult, you did research on on this arena. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: So um, one of the first things that struck me was that when schools are working with parents, they tend to have a view of what parents should be doing or -hmm. shouldn't be doing, right? What students should be doing or shouldn't be doing. right? Um, And there are a lot of reasons for schools to have these ideas, both good and maybe not so good. But I have found that those kind of views of what makes a good parent or what makes a successful child actually don't line up with a lot of our kids, and they don't necessarily match a lot of our families. And so I really just started to dig into why that would be, how did schools get to a place where they were, um, you know, hoping for one set of behaviors from families, and then, and then what happens when they get something different?
1: So dive into that just a little bit sure. more, because it's, it's fascinating. And, and I couldn't agree with you more conceptually, right? Like mm-hmm. the expectations that are being placed on parents and students are kind of out of sync with the reality of the world we live in in some way, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, so you'll have to stop me if I get too technical. I can I can go <laughs> you on. You have my word. Okay. I, I joke with my students since I, I teach undergraduates. I say, you know, I'm available to put you to sleep if you have insomnia at 3am. So don't let me get there. Okay, you got it. Okay. So, you know, so one of the things I noticed was that schools have become, and I'm talking mostly public schools right now in the United Mm -hmm. States, they've become very focused on these sort of traditional markers of achievement, right? A lot of times people are comparing the United States to other countries, and it's usually not a favorable comparison. So when schools are interacting with parents, it tends to fall out on this particular divide. Is the student academically sort of successful in this vision or or not. And if the student is not, then that becomes the focus of remediation. And so I just want to be clear that I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to academics. Of course we should, but I would also like to see um, schools and society as a whole paying attention to the other really important aspects of the whole person that kids will need to become successful and functioning adults. So
1: true. So many things come up for you. For me, as I hear this, like one is just if the pandemic has done nothing else, it's highlighted what's really important about social and emotional development and lifestyle and life learning. And like, that's been this huge impact, right?
2: Um, it's been go fascinating. Ahead speak to that. And then something else came up too. <laughs> sure. No, it's it's been fascinating. And um It's been fascinating to just kind of track the way that the pandemic has impacted our parenting kind of Mm -hmm. generally, impacted our children's schooling, and also sort of really brought into stark relief this idea that what kids need is not only learning to read or learning to do math, What they need is also sort of human connection and a relationship within the classroom and a relationship with their peers and the ability to work within within the community of their classroom. You know, we lost some of those things and we're gaining some of them back. And it's really highlighted for me anyway, how just deeply important these, they're called, they're called soft skills in the research. And um, the, I'm not the one who said this, but uh, the soft skills are actually really the hard skills in right. a lot of ways.
1: Especially when you're dealing with an audience of complex kids. Absolutely. right Absolutely. The other thing that came up is I was listening to you and it's so in alignment with what we, with our model, with what we teach, with the coach approach. Um, at the end of the day, there are two things that kids need to be successful They need, in school, they need cognitive capacity, right? They need to be smart enough. And then they need this whole realm of executive function, right? Self-regulation. They need to be able to manage their emotions and to organize a backpack and to prioritize And all of these parts of executive function, which our kids, complex kids, struggle with mightily. So they could be smart as a whip, but their backpack could be exploding and they can never remember to turn in their homework. And in my experience, and I'm curious what you'll say, is when we ask a group of teachers what percentage of school success is cognitive capacity is smarts, usually they'll say about 25%. (laughs) And the rest of it,
2: 75%, is what you're calling soft skills, right? And I feel like... First of all, I completely agree. Yeah. And second of all, I feel like learning the soft skills and really learning how to um, become a community member in a functioning group, right? Say, say that the- again,
1: how to become a community member in a functioning group, what part of what school is supposed to be teaching?
2: I think that it is, right? And I think right. that one of the issues we have is that this didn't used to be a goal, Right. That wasn't really critical to our workplaces. If you go back 75 years, you didn't need someone who could work well with other people. No. And, and, you know, to go with your executive function point, jobs in the past provided the executive function portion for you. You know, they, they were you. factories. They we were. were yeah. We
1: were educating kids to work in factories. And right? you
2: did what you were told when you were told to do it. But now we have to decide what we need to do and when we need to do it, and how much, or um, how well, how well, and you know, how are we going to work with particularly with people who don't see eye to eye with us, but we Mm -hmm. still have to work with them and get to an endpoint. And so I think that's one thing that's really shifted in education over the last say, 50 to 75 years.
1: Well, I think what I'm hearing is that's a new a need we have for education, but in some ways, education hasn't Mm -hmm. caught up. 100%.
2: Right? 100%. Yeah. So what needs to shift? We I know often, what the outcome is, but what's yeah. your... So I often, when I'm teaching, I'd say to, to my students, like if, I, if you could have a magic wand right. and just make a change, you know, what would that be? So what I'm going to say next qualifies as a magic wand kind of change, not practical at this right. point. Um, I believe we need a different system of education Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, less so in elementary school, but more so as you hit middle and high school, we're very siloed, right? We have a path for mathematics and you do algebra or algebraic thinking first, and then you do geometry, and then you do more sophisticated algebra. And it's separate from science. It's separate Mm -hmm. from physics. It's separate from everything. And what that does is well, it it gives us a generation of students who believe that math is math and science is science, mm-hmm. and these two realms don't meet. It also gives us a generation of students who are not working with other people to take what they're learning and then to apply them in mm-hmm. real world circumstances. So. Uh, an example of an interdisciplinary high school program that I know of, and since I'm in the Boston area, they used uh, statistics, research skills, so social science skills, and English skills to study a topic, and it changed every year, in depth about the history of Boston, right? And how that impacts the present day. So mm-hmm. they worked in groups, they were communal working, trying to work through problems, trying to make decisions about how to move their research forward. And they were using all of these key skills that we want high schoolers to have, but they were using them in service of a greater project mm-hmm. um, that all of them work towards. Yeah. And that mirrors the the modern workplace better than the traditional model.
1: So, what occurs to me, it sounds amazing, and you're in the Boston area, which is kind of, a you know, a, a pool of opportunity for exploration and innovation in the realm of education. What happens when you get out into the rest of the country that's not looking at education from a how-can-we-innovate perspective, but that's, you know, we've got teachers who are trying to hit the metrics of the that's given to them by the system and the principals holding them accountable and the parents trying to get help. And like, I I feel for the teachers in this moment,
2: (laughs) right? Right. And I I think um, this is the tension and that's why my response was a magic wand response. Mm -hmm. Um, So my sense having been in the field now for a while is that we have a lot of research about what really works Mm-hmm. To educate children with depth, not just with breadth, um, and other countries are actually taking American research and, and applying using it, it in right. their own systems <laughs> to great success. So, unfortunately, though we have these really strict federal laws, state laws that require teachers to you know cover a certain amount of it's material. Expensive. And so there's not a lot of space for Mm -hmm. the kind of deeper learning that we're discussing here today.
1: So, you know, in our work, we talk about, we have a lot of parents with a lot of vision and a lot of big picture magic wand goals, because we want our kids to grow up to be independent successful. And it's not a magic wand. They're, They're all capable of that. We just have to help them get there. So if you could look to the
2: first step, what might a first step be in moving in this more collaborative direction? That is a great question. I'm going to answer from my area of, you know, sure. passion, which gives me a, a bias of sorts, right? Okay. Since I've spent so much time thinking about the ways that parents interact with schools, yeah, I would love to see there be greater collaboration across the school, family, and community boundary. Mm-hmm. In what I believe that would do would be to bring more voices forward into the realm of education. Mm -hmm. Now, my sense again is that a lot of teachers sort of understand what best practice is, but are kind of limited from being able to implement it because of the structures put around their teaching. But if you can demonstrate a sort of groundswell of popularity around making, a specific change within your specific system. So really working on Mm -hmm. a local level, if you can support educators in moving forward with these ideas, that is a way to make change. Generally in education, the top-down change never works very well, right? And I'll say that given just the incredible diversity of the United States, um, parenting is different, what parents want is different, that it's really gonna look different Locally, I you know, yeah. what's going to work outside Boston or in Boston is going to be really different than rural Texas, which will be different from Seattle.
1: Yeah, I love what you're saying for us. There's one of the things we've been wanting to do that we haven't gotten to yet. We, you know, we have a, cr- a course called Sanity School for Parents, and then we have a, a course for called Sanity School for Teachers because we had so many parents who took the course, who were also teachers who came to us and said, this is transforming my classroom. And what I want is to find a school who will do research with us on, like take a third grade class and have all the parents and all the teachers in that community coming to a common language around a coach approach to, to
2: empowering these kids to become independent, right? Oh, it's third or fourth grade class. Wouldn't that be amazing? It, it sounds incredibly exciting to be able to do that. Yeah.
1: And so that's what I'm hearing is that it really happens on a local level. It's really getting very specific on one change at a time, and it's not trying to, to change the whole system, but changing the players within the system.
2: Yes. And if I can add, yes. um, since you have a focus on complex children, one piece of this that relates to complex kids that I've thought about for so long has been that because of the sort of the breadth that teachers have to. Cover, right? Right. That has turned into, I don't know, let's call it sort of a model student. Like there is a kind of student that teachers need in order to be able to get all of this stuff done. And it doesn't match, I'm going to guess, even half of the kids in our classrooms, but it it involves being able to listen for long periods of time, being able to sit still, being able to focus for long periods of time, even when they're young. And that, I think, just ties in with this idea of complexity for students because they, um, some students just can't do this. Or right. some students, and I'm talking about some of my own children, in order to focus, they actually need to move. I'm actually yes. really like that too. I'm very wiggly. I would never make it in some of these classrooms. Yeah. Um,
1: I was talking to a, a mom today, one of my clients who is a, a physician, Um, grown adult physician with two teenage kids, right? Who finally realized now that she's probably got ADHD and she looks back in her life. She changes jobs every three years. She needs to have multiple things to do. She likes to have variety in the workplace. Like she can go back and she's extremely successful as a physician and she's able to do it by accommodating her own environment and finding workplaces that work for the way her brain works.
2: I I hear this, I hear this a lot, right? And sometimes when I'm working with parents, what I say is your child is amazing.
1: Mm.
2: They may have difficulty with school, but that doesn't mean they're going to have difficulty with life. So then you look at school as what are the strategies you can put in place to get your child through school intact, right? Right. Knowing that as an adult, they're just going to be in their element. I I just
1: had this conversation on one of our office hours calls because my my motto, and we'll get to your motto in a little bit, but my motto is to my kids was, you're going to be an amazing adult. We just got to get you there. That's right. Because getting them there, some kids getting them there through school is the biggest obstacle.
2: And once they get into life, that's when they can be successful. And then I think that to go back to the local focus change. Mm -hmm. And again, I think this is not, this is nothing that would be surprising to many teachers, but to say the way that our classrooms are functioning are actually excluding a fair number of our kids. What shifts can we make practical on the ground shifts can we make to make sure that our children are accessing the learning in a way that is most comfortable for them? And that's another concrete way to move this forward.
1: So one of the things that was really intriguing to me as I
2: was reading about your work was this concept of a community equity lens. Will you talk about that a little bit? Sure. This actually came out of my dissertation research. Um, and in this, I interviewed parents. I did this um, face-to-face, but I also did a survey. And I found that parents with different backgrounds actually had very different visions of what mm. schools should be, right? Right. And what, what I found was that certain parents just had more power within their communities and more voice. And these parents were sometimes able to drive forward their view of education at the expense of other parents who are not able to be as vocal, not able to have school administration, for example, um, hear their point of view. So can I just interject real quick? Because sure. Because...
1: I've had this conversation over the years with a number of principals, because you were talking earlier about American research, U.S. research not being implemented. One of the things we know is that we're doing homework wrong in this country in a big way. And yet, when you talk to principals, oftentimes what they'll tell you is, I know, but there are parents who really want it. I know we shouldn't be doing it, but the parents are asking for it. And so that
2: sounds like it's exactly what you're speaking to. And I think that homework is a fantastic example of this because homework really doesn't work for some kids and it causes incredible amounts of stress. Right. Um, we know that at the elementary level, homework actually does not have a positive impact at all, but it's such a touch button issue that there can be incredible pressure from vocal parents uh, right. to keep homework, right? And so that, yeah. that's an example right there. What that does is creates an inequity within a system, right? Mm-hmm. And we often think, we often believe, I did for many years, that my parenting is individual, right? I have my own <laughs> kind of style, and my husband and I have decided that we're going to do X, Y, and Z with our kids, and that should make no difference to anyone else, right? But the problem is that's not the case especially for people who are like me, I'm a white woman and I'm in a community that is fairly affluent. Mm-hmm. I have a certain amount of power and I have a certain amount of voice. I'm one of the people who can be heard really well in our system also because I'm an educator. Right. And I know how to, I know how to work through the system. So the issue is then that my views, which I, of course, because I'm me, I think I'm right. They work for me. <laughs> we all think we're correct and there's no don't feel bad about that because we're human the human you know mode of being is how would we function if we didn't right Right. we all think (laughs) we're right but i'm taking these ideas of my rightness and i'm asking the school system to apply them broadly onto all other kids and parents and the truth is that a lot of These ideas that I have, they don't fit other families, they fit my family. And so the conversation has to be much broader and the conversation has to focus, what I ask of parents is not just what your own child needs, although of course you focus on what your child needs from school and you advocate for those things, but you should also be asking, what do other children in this school system need? What don't I see? What are the other needs that are maybe different from mine? so that you have a broader context of your entire community.
1: Well, and if if the goal is for kids to learn how to become a community member in a functioning group, going back to your conversation from earlier, then we as parents need to be asking, what does the community need, right? What's the culture of
2: the school that everybody needs, not just my child? Precisely. And that also mirrors the modern work world, because Mm -hmm. In the modern work world, we don't step in. I don't say to you as my employer, I am going to need every third Friday off and I, you know, get my nails done or whatever. You know, you don't have that kind of personal interaction with your workspace, you know? So, yes, the idea is then how do you assess the needs of your full community? And then what can you do to make sure that? Every person gets what they need in order to be a successful and functional adult in the long run. It's a long run picture. It's the gigantic magic wand, right? It 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 is. is. And
1: it's important. It's powerful. One of the things we talk about a lot with parents is how important it is to hold a vision. Because if you don't create and hold a vision, then we don't know what we're working towards. And what I love about what you're saying is that you're really holding a vision for a broader understanding of what it means for us to create a society where we can educate our kids and families collaborate with each other in that
2: work and if we get to the point where so right now our school systems have really hugely different um, levels of funding right right but if we got to the point where we were able to provide every kid with the quality education no matter where they live we would find within a fairly short period of time that a lot of things that are problems within our world would start resolving wouldn't be perfect right but making sure that every child has what they need in terms of education is one way to truly build a a better future and it's not just for those kids it's for all all kids for all people in our community
1: yeah i love that Beautiful, beautiful vision. So Liz, we need to start wrapping up and and I have way more questions to ask than we have time to ask. Just real quick, because I know it's going to be in the show notes. Where can people get in touch with you? Where can they find out more?
2: Sure, I have a website and I blog fairly regularly. Um, So that's lizdempsylee.com. And again, it's in the show notes so you can find out
1: more about her there. Thank you. And I guess I have two questions before we wrap. And I'm going to ask us to make them quick, right? One is, if we make this real, maybe we'll tie them in. Like, what's the one thing or what do you want listeners to take away from today that might make this real for them now? Because we're talking theoretically how to change the paradigm of, of education in the U.S. and
2: maybe around the world. How do we make it real
1: for people right now?
2: So I always ask people to start by talking to other people talk to your mm-hmm. peers and ask these questions. Ask, you know, what does your child need and what do you think other children in our community need? Ask your child's educators the same question. Just start talking about it everywhere and ask for other people's opinions. You're not looking for wholehearted agreement, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. You're
2: looking to launch conversations. I love that. So shift the bus
1: stop conversation from where'd you go to dinner last night to what do you
2: think our kids need in education? That would be a radical shift for a lot of people. It would. And you don't need to solve all the world's problems at the bus stop, but just starting a community conversation that moves in that direction is powerful.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Concepts are concepts create reality, right? We have to start by with the, with the ideas. So, Liz, thank you. One last question for you. Do you have a favorite quote or motto that you'd like to share with our
2: listeners? Sure. It's not so relevant to our conversation, but it's one I use in my own parenting. I don't shoot for a hundred percent, right? I shoot for 80%. 80%. If you if you can get 80% of what you need to get done with your kids, you know, your goals, then that's awesome. Perfect, right? Trying to have perfect kids or trying to be a perfect parent ends up not being perfect at all. So just go for the low hanging fruit, enjoy yourself and let everything else go because it will be okay. It will be okay. That's a a dominant
1: theme in this podcast is it's going to be okay, y'all. We can do this. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate you being here so much. It's been a great conversation.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Truly a pleasure. Our guest today has been Liz Dempsey-Lee. She's a parenting educator and blogger and has done some really interesting research on, on parenting and has a beautiful perspective on the notion of a community equity lens around parenting. And uh, it's been great having you. To those of you listening, I want to thank you again for all you're doing. Remember that what you're doing for yourself and for your kids at the end of the day is what makes the difference more than anything else. Have a great day, everybody. We'll talk to you the next time.
0: You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.